Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. We are in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And I just wanted to kind of start off this morning by asking, does anybody in here have ADD or think you have ADD or ADHD or something like that? The older I get, I really am becoming convinced that I'm diagnosing myself with some spiritual ADD or ADHD or something like that uh, there. Um, I don't know if sometimes you wonder that about yourself, but I've been doing some research a little bit on, on it um, because it's how worried I am, I guess, that I might have it. Uh, let me see how how you react to it as well. Uh, number one, one of the most telltale signs, of course, is a lack of focus. Uh, it just goes deeper, though, than not being able to pay attention um, or, or being very easily distracted. You know, like, have you ever found yourself just kind of get distracted while you're driving? Yeah, that's not ADD. It's something that's it's deep distraction, talking, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's something shiny over there, and they're in a whole nother they're in a whole other dimension. Uh, it also means you're not able to complete tasks or projects very easily. Uh, this is what I tell Stacy every time I forget to fold the laundry. Uh, just ADD. That's just how you have to live with it. Uh, then on the opposite side would be hyperfocus. You get so locked into something that you forget time and you forget all these things. You sometimes will zero out everybody else and you're in like tunnel vision. Uh, so that's pretty much everybody when they're playing video games. You just kind of hours go by and you never notice uh, that it's happened. This can lead to some relationship issues. Another side effect, number three, is disorganization. Anybody, can I get a witness on the disorganization, right? You looked everywhere for your keys this morning. You've got 10 different sets of keys because if you lose one, you can go and find the other. Anybody there? Okay. Um, Time management problems, often running late or forgetting appointments, having a reluctance to finish assignments because you deem them to be boring, uh, or maybe you're a procrastinator, you have a 20-page paper due, and you wait until 20 minutes before the class until it's due to try to, to try to work on that. Forgetfulness. Anybody forgetful? Yeah. Some of you are so forgetful that you forgot that you forget. But uh, you routinely forget where you put something, important events on the calendar, forgetting if you washed your hair while you were in the shower, those types of things. Uh, impulsivity. Impulse shopping, impulse eating, interrupting people in their conversation, talking over people when they're trying to discuss something. Also, emotional problems can develop from this because you get so easily bored that you end up going to look for excitement on a whim. You're so bored, like, I just got to get out of the house and do something. And then small frustrations can lead to depression and mood swings in that. It also leads to, number eight, a poor self-image. People that struggle with ADD or ADHD are often hypercritical of themselves because they see their struggles as personal failures rather than a medical condition. Lack of motivation. You may be open to doing everything at once, but you're also just unmotivated to do it because it just seems too overwhelming, which leads to restlessness and anxiety. Your mind won't shut off. You find yourself having to pace in order to think deeply. You can't sit still. This is me. I, 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 at night in bed, I, I can't be still. I just rub my feet together at night. Drives Stacy insane. I can't stay still. It's weird. Fatigue. With all that activity, who can, who can uh, have all the energy to get through the day, right? Health problems come because of undue stress. Maybe a lack of motivation. They all have a neg- negative impact on our health and our ability to keep a proper diet and exercise regimen, which then will lead to relationship issues at times. If you don't understand how things are going there, it can lead to the people that love us the most understanding us the least. 
And also substance misuse can develop as well. Self-medicating for things. Some of the funny symptoms. Others are more serious symptoms there. That uh, How many of you can identify with a couple of those? Okay. The rest of you are lying, to be quite honest, right? We all may have those. Now, some of you are shaking your head because you're diagnosing me with it. Right? You've been here long enough, you know that maybe I've got, some, I've got some things. But the way you'll be able to tell if maybe possibly you may have ADD to some extent is that you're not going to be able to think about anything else for the rest of the morning. Or maybe you tuned me out at point number three and you started thinking about something else. Um, let's take a pop quiz this morning as we go through. This is our fifth message through Colossians uh, already. And it's hard to think that out of this little book we can just get so much. But that's the beauty of expository preaching, just kind of going through the books of the Bible and letting the Bible set the, set the tone and set the schedule for what sermons come. But let's just kind of get a review just to kind of test your base knowledge. Number one, who's the writer of the book of Colossians? All right, Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is the writer. Who's the author of the book of Colossians? God, all right, good. God is the author. He has about 40 different writers, uh, but God is the writer of all of it. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the believers in Colossae, which was a mostly Gentile town in Asia Minor uh, back in the ancient days. And what is the theme? We've mentioned this word so many times. The theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Um, Christ is above all. He is, he's number one. And that has to be the standard in church and in our Christian lives as well, is that God, Jesus Christ, has to be number one. We can't have Jesus and something, Jesus plus something, or something that replaces Christ. Because when we do that, we begin to diminish the whole reason that we are here. And uh, what we see in, the, in this book, Paul writes this, and though he hasn't been to Colossae, he's heard that some people have come into the church by this point, after about the first generation of Christianity, teaching doctrines that have chipped away at the preeminence of Christ. A lot of these guys were known as Judaizers. They came in saying, yes, Jesus can save you, but if you want to stay saved and if you want to really prove your salvation and have like first-class Christianity, you need to adopt all of the Jewish laws and practices and diets and, and all of those things that mark you as a really elite Christian. Um, and so preeminence of Jesus Christ. The Colossians weren't rejecting Christ, and it's important to understand, they weren't rejecting Christ, they were just saying that Christ wasn't enough, that something else had to be added to it to enhance Jesus. But church, we can't enhance Jesus. There is nothing on earth, and there is nothing that we can do that will ever be able to add to or enhance Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough. Matter of fact, Jesus is more than enough. His grace is amazing, and his grace is enough to save us, to keep us saved, and also for us to grow in as well. If you're looking for something outside of Jesus, you're wasting your time because Jesus is it. So they had def kind of just went away from it. They had basically said, well, we trust Jesus, but we also need to trust in some of these other things. Their attention was beginning to drift with ideas and philosophies and isms and practices that were outside of Jesus Christ. Um, they diminished the importance of Jesus and what a true, genuine relationship looked like. So you could say they were beginning to suffer from spiritual ADD. They had lost their focus in Christ, and they began to focus on other things, and they'd become distracted, and therefore they had become less effective as ministers of the gospel, and they had become less effective as a church there in the world. So Paul writes this letter. It's almost like this giant finger snap to the Colossians, like, hey, 
Keep your eyes back on Jesus. Over here, don't veer from your focus on Jesus Christ. And so he opened the letter, he outlined his prayer for the believers that they would focus on Jesus and that the grace that God had given was enough. He said that he had focused that Christ is worthy on whatever it takes and whatever it costs to share the gospel with others. And through all of this, the attention and the focus is one subject, and it's Jesus Christ. Folks, Jesus cannot be lifted high enough in our churches today. Jesus cannot be lifted high enough in our lives today. If there's something else that more typifies or more characterizes your life and your ambitions, you've wandered away and you may be, fo- you may be struggling from what we call spiritual ADD. And that's what the passage is we get into this morning. After Paul has talked about Christ and why we need to keep our focus on him and what Jesus and the importance of Jesus, now he shifts into going at, he kind of throws the gloves off and he starts going at these false teachers. And he attacks three different philosophies of that day, which I think we still struggle with in churches today as well. We may not call it the same thing, but we still struggle with these three distractions too. So we're going to look at three distractions in this text this morning that we have to make sure that we don't get tied up in or else we're going to get ourselves into trouble. So verse number 16, it says this, Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days. Those things are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the fulfillment is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels or ascetic practices is basically what it's talking about there. Because those intrude into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. And here's the key verse of this text. Wherefore... If you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world or from the elements of this world, why as though living in the world are you subject to the ordinances and the laws? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. All of those things are going to perish with the using. After the commandments and the doctrines of men, why are you doing this? Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will and and humility and the neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh So in this passage, Paul moves from this this attitude of edifying and exalting Jesus, you know, that he's the head of the church, that he's the firstborn of creation, all of these things that we see here, and he calls out these three false doctrines, these practices, these philosophies that some of these false teachers were bringing into the church, and they were distracting the Colossians. And a couple of things happen when we get distracted as the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, Christ is not worshipped the way he should be. Worship ceases to be about Jesus. It's, it begins to be about other things. It begins to be about whether we're keeping, uh, keeping in step with maybe even with culture or we're keeping in step with tradition or whether I liked this or I didn't like that or whatever goes on. We kind of view it more through my mindset and my view rather than we view it through scripture. The thing that happens is the gospel begins to be diminished. We cease to preach the gospel because the gospel is Christ and when Christ is not the focus, we lose the focus of the gospel. We also lose our heart for others who don't know Christ because our heart becomes more about chasing after those things, making sure that we're just, you know, that we're building ourselves up through all of these other things rather than Christ being made manifest in our lives. Remember what John the Baptist said? He must increase, but we must decrease, right? 
So all of these things were distracting from the faith of Colossians. And I believe these isms and these ideas are kind of still prevalent in the church today, 2,000 plus years later. Maybe it manifests itself in different forms. But just like each of us could probably identify with some of those uh, symptoms of ADD, I think we can probably identify with some of these symptoms that we look at here in this passage this morning. So let's look quickly this morning at these three distractions. And what I want you to do is just stop real quick and ask God, Lord, reveal in me, reveal in my heart, reveal in my life if I am suffering from any of this ADD, if I am suffering from any of these distractions, if I let these distractions pull me away from following Christ. So the first distraction that we look at is the distraction of legalism. The distraction of legalism. Look again at verse number 16. Paul says, and I'm reading this from the, from the Christian Standard Bible, says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or your meat or your drink or in the matter of a festival or a holy day, a new moon or a Sabbath day. Well, what in the world is going on? What in the world's going on there? We've talked about legalism before, right? When we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we saw these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees that were all about the rules. They were all about the laws, and they wanted to keep the law so that they wouldn't offend God's law. They set up all of these other laws, like guardrails, so that you wouldn't go off the cliff. And so pretty soon what had happened in the, in the Jewish way of life was they didn't even think about God's law, like the Ten Commandments. What they thought about was all of these other laws that the Pharisees had come up with, and that became sacred rather than God's law. And people began to be judged on that, and they said, God will only be pleased if you follow these laws that we've made this interpretation of the law that has been given. And so they said, God will only be pleased, and you'll only be able to get to God if you follow that. Now, there's, there's kind of two, two types of legalism. One is, and this is the strictest definition of legalism, is the idea that I can earn my salvation by following the rules. Now, that goes against the gospel completely. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. If you sin one time, guess what? We don't even have to sin. We're already born sinners, we're already born with the deck stacked against us. That's why we need grace. But legalism says if I can just work my I can eventually work my way to heaven, I can climb out of this pit. I can, it's almost like a dead person saying, I can work myself back alive. That doesn't happen. And so that's what one form of legalism. Another form of legalism is thinking that if I follow all the rules, God will just be more pleased with me and it will make me this elite Christian. That following the rules will make me grow. Following the rules will do that. And there's a, there's a sense of that, maybe. But if it's a legalistic mindset is our relationship ceases to be with Jesus, and it ends up being with the rules. See, the Judaizers had come to this predominantly Gentile city. Most of the people there knew nothing about the Jewish laws or the Jewish rules or the Jewish feasts, the holy days, the Sabbaths, and all of those things. They didn't know anything about that. And they said, look, <clears throat> the only way that you're going to be a real Christian is if you adopt all of these rules. But the problem is, is that when Jesus came, when he died on the cross, the law was completed in Jesus Christ. It didn't mean that the law wasn't important anymore. The law was there to show us our need for Christ. But in Jesus, all are fulfilled. So the Gentiles didn't know anything about that. And so God had ordained and initiated all of these Jewish practices for the Jews specifically. But he had ordained and he initiated these feasts and these sacrifices at the beginning of each month, these new moons for cleansing of sin. Well, our sin is now cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He ordained the Sabbath days as a day of focus and rest to recenter on God and his people. But after Christ, none of those things were needed. They were there so that God's people could learn purity 
And the fact that they cannot chase after purity and to be pure enough, they need grace. And there's some real problems when it comes to a legalistic approach to our faith. And some of us, and I'm guilty of this many times in my life because I get... I find it easier for me to just follow rules and say that makes me holy than to just than to pursue a relationship with Christ. Sometimes just having a relationship with the rules is a lot easier than intimacy with Jesus. Because it's easier to just say, hey, I did all this. And when I do that, I don't have to let God into my heart and reveal the other things that need to be changed in me. Because legalism, what it does is it puts the focus on us when it's supposed to be on Christ. Legalism is the practice of proving one's spirituality by keeping rules and regulations rather than on the basis of a relationship with Jesus. See, when we make our faith all about the rules, it becomes less about Christ's righteousness given to us by his grace and more about our righteousness that we display through our own works. The focus is no longer on Christ. The focus is on us. And that's how we get arrogant Christians that can look down their nose and say, well, you're not as good as me because you haven't done this. How many times have you read through the Bible? How many studies have you done? How many, how many times did you do this this week? We can get that kind of attitude if we're not careful. And here's the problem with legalism too. Is that when it becomes about us keeping the rules, the problem is none of us can keep all the rules. There's always going to be something that we can't do, that we can't keep. And so it's not within our power. So this leads us to usually building a righteousness that we define by the things that we can do and ignoring the things that we can't. Because you and I all have weaknesses. We have besetting sins in our lives. And our besetting sins are different. So when we have a legalistic mindset, what we do is we say, well, I don't have a problem. I don't struggle with, with drinking. I don't struggle with, uh, with, with swearing. I don't struggle with uh, you know, gluttony. I don't struggle with any of those. So, so this is how righteousness is defined. And if anyone drinks, if anyone smokes, if anyone overeats, if anyone does these things that I don't have a problem with, then they're just not even close to being a mature Christian. But if you flip the script and look at that person, they may struggle with those things, but they don't struggle with generosity. They don't struggle with looking out for other people's needs. They don't struggle with some of those other things. And so we end up defining, self-defining what righteousness really looks like when we become legalistic. That's what the Pharisees did. And here's what happens. We end up putting a magnifying glass on other people. What we do is we say, if I can't do it, I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. It's kind of like, I don't have a weight problem if I don't have scales to step on. Right? And that's what legalism will lead to. Very strong on some things and very like zoned in on some things that we can do. But don't talk to me about those other things that I struggle with because then I begin to realize I'm not good enough. Well, here's the thing. That's the moment that Jesus becomes amazing. When you realize you're not good enough, but he's imputed his righteousness on you, that's what makes his grace amazing. That's what makes Jesus beautiful. That's when we have a heart for worship because we realize if not for the grace of God, there go I. That I don't have to be good enough because I never will be, but Jesus is good enough. And he's not just giving me good enough, he's given me righteousness in my life. Legalism will eventually, the only natural outcome of legalism is judgmentalism. Some of the most, (laughs) I've never met a legalist who wasn't judgmental. Now you're saying, well, that's very judgmental of you to say that, so I must be legalistic myself, right? Judgmentalism is the only natural outcome of a legalistic faith. If you're constantly having to prove your own spiritual prowess, it's going to lead you to keeping a magnifying glass on other people. 
Kind of like in middle school. You remember the bullies that always made themselves feel better by tearing everybody else down? I mean, come on, it's not just middle school. We do it in life too, right? Ever been on Twitter before? If you constantly have to prove your worth, you're going to constantly be looking for other people's unworthiness to make your worth more magnified. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. He said this, Why do you look at the moat or the splinter that's in your brother? Notice the beam of wood that is in your own. Like a dude that walks up, that's got this two-by-four sticking through his head. And he says, hey, you got like an eyelash there in your eye, man. You need to go do something about that. How could you come out here so unkempt? Makes no sense whatsoever. But that's what legalism leads to. It leads to this judgmentalism. I'm good in this one eye because I'm keeping all these rules, but these other ones I don't have a problem with, so I'm just going to ignore it and say that God's okay with it or you know, just ignore all of that. Jesus called out the scribes and Pharisees for their legalistic judgment too. He says in verse number 23 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you or woe unto you, you scribes and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and anise and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of a cup and dish, but at the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of your own cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. He said that their judgmentalism revealed their hypocrisy as well. In Micah chapter 6, here's what it says. God requires three things of a follower of Jesus. Is that we seek justice, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly with our God. But in legalism, what it becomes about is whether I followed the rules. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing this? See, seeking justice is a heart matter. Loving mercy is a heart matter. Walking humbly with God is a heart matter. And once the heart is right, the hands then begin to take care of themselves. It's an inside-out kind of faith. So legalism turns to judgmentalism, and legalism also cannot save us. And legalism cannot spiritually fulfill us either. In verse number 17 of our text, it says, These are a shadow of what was to come. These feasts, these ordinances, these laws, all of these things that Jewish law said to do, After Jesus, they're all just shadows. Those were things that were there to point to Jesus, but now Jesus, the light, has come. You don't have any more shadows because the light, the truth, the substance is there. That's what it means in the King James when it says the body is of Christ. The fulfillment, the material, the substance is there now. Because you follow all the laws, it's not going to save you, and it's never going to fulfill you. You're always going to fall short. You're always going to fall short, but if you follow Christ... Number one, you'll be saved. And number two, he will fulfill you through a personal relation. Now, that's not to say that, hey, I get saved and I just don't do anything to follow the Lord. No, we follow him now because we are fulfilled by him. Not because I have to earn pieces of him along the way as I go. Because when I got saved, I was given all salvation. Not just a piece and not just a down payment, but I have, that I have to keep earning pieces of it as I go, if that makes sense. See, the law was never designed to save us. The law was never designed to keep us saved. The blood of Christ saves us. The blood of Christ is what keeps us saved. The law was never designed to fulfill us. Jesus is our fulfillment. Purity is gained through Christ's imputation, his imputing righteousness to us, not through our diet, like Paul was saying here, not through our things that we do. Purity is attained through Jesus Christ imputing his righteousness to us. 
Paul's exhortation here is there is a great freedom in living for Christ. So don't relegate yourself to unnecessary bondage. Because God is not looking for you to put yourself under a yoke of bondage in order to prove yourself. You've been proven by the blood of Christ. The second distraction after legalism is mysticism. Mysticism. Look at verse number 18. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices or voluntary humility, the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by these empty notions of their unspiritual or their fleshly mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. See, here's a good definition or working understanding of what mysticism is. Mysticism focuses on one's experience in an effort to prove one's spirituality by means of the number of their spiritual experiences. It means this. It means that I'm going to measure how close I am to God by how I feel every day. How many of you know that your feelings can betray you, right? Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Anybody else? Star Wars? Okay. Uh, Noelle is my little Padawan. I've been training, training her up in the ways of the Force. Um, she's, she's like, she's loving all the Star Wars movies for some reason. But in one of the movies, I can't remember which one it is, Obi-Wan looks at Anakin and says, be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. They betray you. Our feelings can betray us. That's why our faith is not based on our feelings. Our faith is based on the facts and based on truth. That if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. You may not always feel like a new creature, but you are new. If you are saved, you are saved for good. There's nothing you have to continually prove to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that you just say, hey, I'm going to get saved and I'm just going to go off and live my life and see you in heaven when I get there, Lord. Because true salvation leads to a new desire as well, which is to glorify him. But this experiential faith, this idea that I have to feel something amazing in order for God to be real and to be present in my life chips away at God's continual presence in my life. That I have to be on this spiritual high See, we can be guilty of becoming spiritual junkies, can't we? We can come to worship service and we can say, you know what? I just hope that I get something that's going to make me feel good. I just hope that I feel God's presence when I come. And there are moments when God's presence is felt a lot more strongly than, it, than, than at other times, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't there when you didn't feel it. God is always there. He says, we are never left alone. I am with you today, yesterday, and I am there with you forever. I'm there with you to the end of the world. I never leave you. I never forsake you. These are the promises that we can take to the bank. That means today, two or three are gathered in his name. He is here in our midst. The Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer. You are never alone. And whether you feel it or not doesn't matter. The fact remains you are never alone in Jesus Christ. And this mention of, of, of angel worship This is the idea that God intended more for the believer than a relationship with Christ and the confidence of being his child. So what what they were doing in Colossae was saying, hey, yeah, Jesus saved you, but you're going to need some more proof. God's going to have to prove to you that you're saved. And so you have to have all of these different mystical and spiritual experiences. It could mean that they were actually worshiping angels, that they had actually picked out angels, that they said, hey, we're going to worship them as well, thinking that that's a fast track Uh, to God, but more than likely what it means is is that when they worshiped, they wanted to have the attitude or they wanted to act like angels. So they go through these passages that showed how angels worshiped God. 
that they were always in deference, that they were always singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So they would start doing all of these incantations and, and, and just continual droning on and on and on and on and on and making sure that they were prostrate on the ground and, uh, prostrate on the ground and doing all these things saying, hey, we're going to worship like the angels. But church, we were never called to worship like the angels. The angels are a different being with a different purpose than we have. We are to worship with what we have been given. And this was the idea that if I worship like the angels, I'll have this special experience with God. And that's when we get into a really, really dangerous place. Because God doesn't speak through special revelation. His word is complete. His word is done. He's not going to tell you something new or tell you something outside of God's word that he won't share with everybody else. Because God speaks to his body in the same way. So this distraction of mysticism kind of led to within the church is, well, I had this experience the other day, and everybody's like, oh, wow, you are so holy, and that led to jealousy. Oh, wow, you had this experience, but I didn't, so what's wrong with me? So we had some of that stuff kind of come to play as well, and then it kind of came to, well, we can't really worship unless we've had these special experiences, these feelings. It's faith guided by feeling rather than faith guided by God and by the presence of God. So here's how mysticism may look to us today. When I was a youth pastor, um, I always wanted to avoid, when we went into camp every year, I always wanted to avoid, try to avoid the two-week fuzzies. You know, you go to camp, and you get all jacked up for Jesus and stuff, and you come back, and then everything just kind of goes back to normal. It's not just camp that we do that. We'll do that sometimes. Maybe you really got, maybe a service really spoke to you or something. You, you, you know, you come, you rededicate your life, you're saying everything's good, but like in two weeks, Real, like you feel like reality set back in and you just kind of go back and you're like wondering where is, where'd the feeling go? This is the danger, this up and down all of the time of the Christian life, this up, down, all around. God is a God who changes not. And we are to walk with him in, in, a, in a consistent faith. There'll be times we feel closer to him than, we, than others, and that's understandable. When we base our faith off of how we feel, what we end up doing is we end up kind of basing things off of nostalgia or basing things off of preference because if, if worship becomes about how I feel, then I'm going to need things that really register with me personally in order to feel that way. So here's how mysticism kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of shows itself sometimes. I think worship wars in churches is one way that mysticism kind of enters in. Music has an emotional impact, right? I can listen to some 90s music on Spotify, and all of a sudden, I'm like 16, 17, 18 years old again. Anybody have that? Maybe not 90s music, because maybe you grew up in a different era, but you have that where you feel like you're back that way. Sometimes in church, we can do that too. I just want to hear the songs that I know, or I hear the songs that, uh, uh, from, from yesterday, because those are better. We've got to be careful when we do that, because what we're saying is, I need this in order to feel closer. I need this in order to feel something. And there's nothing wrong. We have to have a blend, and we try, and I'm thankful for our worship team that tries and are working on trying to blend in the hymns of the, the, hymns of the past with, this, with the hymns of the new today as well. But we can get really mystical thinking, well, there was something special about yesterday. Or there was something more special about that other day, so let's just try to recreate that experience here. No, what was special yesterday is the same thing that's special today, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The culture may not be the same. The day may not be the same. But the one we worship is the same. Service wars, we also get into that too, thinking, well, if we don't have everything exactly the way it used to be, then, we can't, then it's, not, it's not right. 
Well, as cultures begin to change and things begin to change, we have to look at how can we be most effective to those things. A lot of times our mystical side will come out when change is introduced. God is real and we have personal experiences and encounters, but we have to be careful that our focus stays on him and not just on our, on our experiences. Because the purpose of those experiences, those moments when we feel really close to God, when God draws us close, are there to enable us to grow in our relationship with him and to show that he's evident in our lives. The correct focus must always be on God and not on us. See, it's really easy to walk away from a worship service after, after a day and say, what did I get out of it? It's easy to walk away and say, how did I feel today? And judge it based upon on our, by our feeling. What we must judge our worship services by, what we must judge our spiritual life by is how much is Christ being edified in all of those things? Is Jesus being lifted high? Is Jesus being presented as the foundation for our faith? Is Jesus being lifted high? Because when God is lifted high, he said, I'll draw people to myself. What that means is our worship style doesn't draw people to Jesus. The number of times we meet doesn't draw people to Jesus. All of those things that we can get really amped up about, when Jesus is lifted high, he will draw men to himself. The third thing, and we'll be done this morning, is the distraction of asceticism. Now, asceticism seeks to prove our spirituality through sacrifice and through suffering. Say, so didn't you just preach a couple weeks ago on the fact that we have to suffer for the gospel? Yes, I did. But this is when you try to engage in undue suffering just to show your spirituality to other people. The idea that, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to kind of walk around with this look on my face like I'm just suffering for Jesus, brother. Well, there is some suffering that we're called to sometimes, but sometimes we try to make it look like we're suffering when we're really not, don't we? Because we think that that'll make other people kind of respect us a little bit more. We see this a lot in other world religions. In a lot of the other world religions, most, most of them say the way of acceptance with God is to prove our devotion through sacrifice. Religion says that man, through his efforts, must reach up to God. The Pharisees did the same thing when they fasted. Jesus called them out for it, too. He said, you Pharisees, you're hypocritical. You go and you fast and you wear all these raggedy clothes and you walk around all emaciated with your face looking terrible so everybody knows how spiritual you are because you've been on like a 20-day fast. And everything's just like, you know, oh, I'm something so terrible and I feel awful. He said, that's not bringing you any closer spiritually. It may gain you some credit in people's eyes, but it doesn't get you any closer to God. Because the only way, we cannot credit ourselves enough to get closer to God. Our only credit is Jesus. Jesus is the only thing we can claim when we stand before God and he says, why must I let you into my heaven? Why should I forgive you of this sin? Because I claim the blood of Jesus Christ. That Paul did say in the last part of chapter one that there will be suffering, but we don't need to seek it out and enter into undue suffering and sacrifice just to prove spirituality and righteousness. Because our righteousness is not earned, it's given through Christ. Christianity is entirely different from that. While all the other world religions say you've got to reach God, Christianity is the only one that says God reached man, that he sacrificed so we could have eternal life, that he gave of himself so that we could come to him. We are accepted not by the works we do, but by the work that God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. Christianity says that God, through his efforts in Christ, reached down to us. The Christian life will involve sacrifice, and it will involve self-denial, but it will not 
but, but because we're trying to gain acceptance, but because we are being accepted. We're not sacrificing and we're not going through those things because we're trying to gain acceptance from God, but we do it because we've already been accepted. We're not trying to earn forgiveness, but because we're amazed that we've earned it. Not because we're trying to win some sort of victory, but because we've already had the victory. In other words, I serve him, I sacrifice, I deny myself because I have tasted the glory of Christ and that is the best thing ever. And it's my pleasure and my joy to serve him. And this is why Paul asked the question in verse number 20 when he says this, if you have already died to the elements or to the rudiments of this world, so if you are dead to sin and trespasses and sin and you are alive in Christ, why do you go back to living as though you're dead again? Worried about what you don't touch, worried about what you eat, what about you, what you handle. All of these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are just human commands and human doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Have you ever gone on a crash diet before? Oh, I'm gaining weight, so I'm just going to cut out carbs, or I'm going to cut out cheese, or I'm going to cut out... Have you ever noticed about by day two, when I try to cut out cheese, by day two, my kids start looking like cheese sticks walking around the house. I'm like, come here. I start having hallucinations. Why? Because just, just depriving ourselves of something does not help us mentally. In church, we cannot prove our spirituality by being known, about, by being known more by what we're against than who we're for. We just can't. If your life and your Christianity is typified more by what you don't do than who you, who you cling to in Jesus, then maybe some asceticism has kind of crept in. Because we don't find salvation through avoidance of sin. You find salvation through acceptance of Christ. And you don't grow in Christ by distracting or, or pulling yourself from sin. You grow in Christ by drawing closer to him. And I think our asceticism comes out in church when we focus too much on what we don't do or what we avoid rather than what we are free in Christ to do and what we should and can embrace. We're guilty of asceticism when people know more about the sin that we avoid and the sin we're against rather than the Savior that we embrace and the Savior who died to overcome that sin. So the question is, is my spirituality defined more by what I avoid and what I'm against, or is it defined more by the Lord that I embrace? Because for too long, people know all about what the church is against but they don't know what the church is for. That's got to change. My worship is not defined by what I avoid or what I don't have. It's defined by embracing Jesus and offering him my heart. But didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 9 to deny yourself and take up your cross? Yes. But that self-denial is not a denial of our self-will. It's, it's more of a denial of our self-will and our self-reliance, that I can do all this stuff myself is to deny my self-will and my self-reliance and to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow him. In other words, you can't pay your way to heaven because the debt is too large. And as we move to our invitation this morning, we have to realize you can't climb your way to heaven because the mountain is too steep. You can't work your way to heaven because the task is beyond your reach. You can't fight your way to heaven because the enemy is too strong, and you can't argue your way to heaven because the case that is set against you is just too great. And all of, you, and all of us, as we try to do those things, and all the people today that think that, that heaven is a matter of me doing enough good and it'll balance out one day when I get to heaven, have fallen under the delusion of thinking that I can do it. I'm my salvation. 
And your salvation comes through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. So the only solution through the distra- to the distraction is found in verse number one of chapter three. If you are then risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. See, all these things that Paul talked about in the last part of chapter two, the legalism, the mysticism, the asceticism, all those things were on this plane right here. God said, you want to truly walk with me, you want to worship me, keep your eyes fixed above. Don't get so worried about this stuff. Focus on me, and I will then show you how to properly view and relate to the things that are around you now. When we do that, we find that it takes on a completely different nature and a completely different relationship to the Lord. And here's the big idea for today. See, God's grace, and that's what we're really talking about here. What does God's grace afford us? God's grace is not a license to sin. See, none of this has been about, hey, you're safe, so just go out there and enjoy everything. Go sin and sin up, sin it all up because it's all covered. It's all on Jesus today. I'm not saying that. God's grace is not a license to sin. It is a reason to serve Jesus with reckless abandon, not because of what we have to do, but because we get to serve him, because he chose to save us. See, Paul presents the solution. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, keep your eyes on him. And so the question we lead to as we close out this morning is this. Am I guilty of any of these distractions in my life, embracing some of these distractions in my life? Have I turned my eyes from Christ as being my hope, my salvation, my source for righteousness, my source for everything? And have I looked at some of these other things as as what proves my worth and what proves who I am spiritually? Because Christ in us is the hope of glory, right? Not all of the other stuff. So the question this morning is, what am I clinging to? What am I hoping for? What am I holding on to? If it's any of these other things, it's time to just put our focus back on him.